All right, folks. Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with actor Danielle Basuti about the stage, James Wan, the God of War franchise, Freya, spirituality, and more. As always, thank you for listening, and if you'd like to help the show grow, Please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. Freya, he chose this. I will rain down every agony, every violation imaginable upon you. I will parade your cold body from every corner of every realm and feed your soul to the vilest filth in hell. That is my promise. He saved your life. He robbed me of everything. (laughs) Everything. You were just an animal. Passing on your cruelty and rage, you will never change. And you do not know me. I know enough. Does he? Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the Strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. Just so we have a platform to jump from here, take us back in time to when you were a youngster. You know, were you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? I was not a troublemaker. It, I was, I think I was boring. <laughs> I was definitely a book reader and uh, definitely a fort maker for sure. No, I, my brother is the one that got into all the trouble. And so I was like, I probably going to let him take that. You know, I wasn't really up to misbehaving, not until later in life. So when it comes to reading, did you have maybe a, a writer or a genre that you lean more towards? Oh, gosh, back then. Well, C.S. Lewis was actually Lime Witch in the Wardrobe. I um, you know, growing up in a Christian household, you know, it was sort of curated what we would read. We were very big into fantasy, um, you know, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings. But I also loved a good Nancy Drew novel, you know, and also like Sweet Valley. I think it's Sweet Valley High. I got into those. And then, you know, of course, all the great literature that you'd read in high school, like, yeah, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird. I wouldn't call myself an avid reader. I do love reading. I read probably more scripts now than I do anything, but, you know, loved a good Pablo Neruda poem. I mean, Mm. through me. What is the last book you read off the top of your head? God, the last book. That is a really good question. (laughs) I'm reading a book now called It Starts with the Egg. Hmm. And it's all about fertility. Hey, guys, I just let 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 that land. (laughs) The current thing, the last book I read was part research, part 
therapy. It was called The Body Knows the Truth. And it's basically about the trauma that can be stored from childhood events. You know, a lot of times you wonder why you get caught in certain loops and certain patterns in your life. You're like, gosh, this hurts me. And yet I keep doing it. And how funny my brain knows better, but somehow my body's like, addicted to this or is like this pattern. Oh, I'm sorry. The body keeps the score. It's called the body keeps the score. Sorry. I've got so many things going on in my brain. The body keeps the score. Yeah. And so it just talks about the different, you know, memories that the body can store, which is interesting because before I became a full-time working actress, I did massage therapy. I did a mm. lot of it body work healing. And I remember sometimes working on clients where I would do a trigger point and like a complete memory would flood their brain or like they would burst into tears and they would have this sort of just this emotional reaction to an area of their body that was storing some sort of energy, something pent up, some sort of memory. So The Body Keeps the Score was the last book. It was also a reference book for a feature film that I wrote called Wake Me, which is all about breaking patterns and breaking out of our subconscious sleepwalking state. And now I'm reading about fertility. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask if that was for a role or if you were just reading that for, you know, personal growth or what have you. <laughs> hmm, <that's a> <laughs> now, <laughs> Daniel, what about music? Now, what records were spinning around the house when you were growing up? Oh, gosh, I'm so lucky. I had my mom for that. Just, I mean, all the great stuff. Carol King, Joni Mitchell, Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young, lots of James Taylor, The Temptations, The Four Tops, Aretha Frank. Franklin, my mom, like we had great musicals always playing. We, I, I remember the record player. I'm like, we loved, we loved a good flash dance record. We would even get some Kenny Rogers up in that joint, you know, like it was a very diversified musical experience, you know, some of the great classical music that we would listen to, but yeah. It, and, and our favorite musical is Camelot. So I do remember listening to that music, like ad nauseum, just like on and on and on. My mom and I know every single word from every single character. <laughs> and we probably know about every single lyric to a, a Carole King song. She's she's one of our favorites. But oh, the Beatles, we would get into the Beatles. Jim Croce, I remember having some moments with. And then a little later on, like a little more rock. Oh, the Eagles, of course, one of her favorites. So those were some of the, during my formative years, the music that was going on in the house. Were your parents involved in the business at all, in the arts, any kind of thing? Yeah, my dad was a child actor, and somehow he was always the kid that got chosen. I, I, he just had a charisma about him and a, and a very cute, handsome face. And he was in The Damn Yankees with Frank Sinatra and Gwen Verdon, and they'd always pick that kid, and he'd come and he'd sit right by the star, and you know he'd kind of like do the thing that the kid did back in those musicals, <laughs> and somehow they always would choose my dad. My mom is a, a beautiful singer, songwriter, painter, also writer. She's that's where I get my writing talents from. And she never really gave, I mean, she's also really good with voices, actually. So it's interesting because she used to mimic a lot of the Disney voices growing up. She Cinderella is the one that's the most notable for me. And she would do Cinderella, the evil stepmother, the fairy godmothers, and also the little mice. She would do this little voice and everything. And uh, I used to always be so mesmerized by my mom is laughing at her and so, so enchanted. And then later on, you know, got into voiceover myself and voice mimicking because I, it, whether you know or not, I, I do voice double Elsa every now and again for different projects. I was able to voice Elsa in the video game Dreamlight Valley, which was a huge honor. Wow. When you think back to your own formative films and TV shows from your childhood, what comes to mind initially? 
Oh, gosh. Well, we watched a lot of like Nick at Night because they had all like the good old timey programming that was like kid friendly and family friendly. <laughs> so like I remember Donna Reed. I remember watching The Monkees. What else would we watch? Like The Munsters. And I used to watch The Addams Family. I used to pretend like I was Morticia. I, I still somehow <laughs> think I'm still a, a cross between Lily Munster and Morticia. So yeah, a lot of things like that. We would watch like I Love Lucy on and on and on for days and days. And then, you know, like Back then, TGI Fridays and all the sitcoms like Family Ties and Who's the Boss mm. and Silver Spoons and Facts of Life and Different Strokes, you know, The Jeffersons, you know, Cosby Show, all these great shows that were really good programming for families to watch together. All that was playing in the household. So we, they were, we were not strangers to, to a good TV series and uh, great movies and great music. You would make a great Morticia, by the way, you know, just a side note. <laughs> Do you want to kiss up my arm? <laughs> I even have this this really great blouse on from this photo shoot. And do you see the fringe? Yeah. This does feel very Morticia. It's appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> so this is something I like to ask everyone. So what scared you as a kid? Chucky, Freddy, any of those films, any of those monsters. I liked, I could get into some Stephen King, but when it came, like I didn't like slasher stuff. I don't like anybody with a hack, like a chainsaw or like a hatchet. Like I, although in Misery, didn't she have a hatchet in that one? Yeah, yep. she, she have a hatchet. And a sledgehammer. Also, oh, sledgehammer, yeah. that's right. The hatchet <laughs> is from The Shining, yeah, right? Yeah, it's, you're right. Yeah, yeah here's Johnny. <laughs> yeah, that scared me. There were certain people in the church that would scare me. Yeah, still, still there. <laughs> <laughs> but people in the church that delight me as well, that are really truly living out like very Christ-like life, which is, you know, based in a lot of love and grace and humility. What else used to scare me? Yeah, I think that was it. I wasn't really, I couldn't really do like the hard horror stuff. And my parents would be terrified anyway. They didn't want us to be watching that. But every now and then you go to the, the friend's house whose, whose parents let them do yeah. it. So do you have a maybe a eureka moment you can point to maybe where the, the light bulb went off in your own head and you decided to pursue acting? It was always there. It was never a light bulb. It was just like I was out of the womb and I was like jazz hands, you know, <laughs> I was like, here I am. Let's do this. It just made sense to me. I think it's in my DNA just from a long lineage of of artists on both sides of my huge ginormous Italian family literally both sides are you know have the entrepreneurial or artistic spirit and vocation it made sense and I and I talk about this a lot in like some of the interviews I've been doing that I think it was around four years old or five when I watched The Wizard of Oz for the first time I was of course completely enchanted I was just I mean who, who was it the first time you watched it right it was just everything and I remember immediately when it was done like gathering my family members and taking them to the backyard and reenacting acting the whole movie where I was Dorothy and I got my little stuffed animal doggy and my little like <laughs> Easter kit as Toto. And I think my dad was the wicked witch. And like, I think my aunt or uncle, someone threw a bucket of water on him and he was like, I'm melting, I'm melting. So <laughs> yeah, I think that was a moment. And I was also like, oh, maybe I'm also a little bit of a producer and director. Cause I was like putting all it together. I was like, we're going to do this right now. I must be Dorothy. So even from a young age, were you interested in drama and theater in school immediately yeah mm. yeah i went to grace brother in christian school all the way through junior high and they did have some opportunities there certainly with choir and like different skits that we would do but they didn't have you know maybe it was just back then or where i was living in simi valley it didn't really have 
the budget or the support financially to like put on the full production. And um, I also was very interested in sports and things of that nature. And so at one point, you know, my parents were like, well, maybe we'll let them go to the public school for high school because they can have a little bit more, you know, sort of stretch, you know, spread their wings out a little more and get that kind of support that they were looking for. And that was when I was really able to, you know, the first uh, musical that I did actually was that summer at a summer theater thing. I did Grease. I, I got cast as Rizzo. And that was the first role that I ever got cast in. Like Pink it was, Lady. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the naughty Pink Lady, which was so ironic because I was so virginal. I had never smoked. I, I think the only alcohol I had ever tasted being in an Italian family is when you sneak the little thing of wine in your poppy's wine. And he, he knows you're doing it and you're like eating the bread. It's like soaked with the wine. And I think, yeah, so it was interesting because the girl that played Sandy. Mm, I was saying you, so you should have been Sandy, huh? <laughs> yeah, on the inside, I was Sandy. And somehow on the outside, they saw Rizzo, which was so funny to me. But then, of course, I got a lot of great opportunities. I got to play Reno Sweeney, which was my first in Anything Goes, which was my first big musical at Royal High School. Yeah, so it was all really good. And, you know, I, of course... I wanted to be a Kiki Palmer. Like I like when I booked True Jackson VP, I was like, oh yeah, you're doing exactly what I wanted to do. Like I wanted to do an Achille and the Bee. I wanted to be young and in the industry. And my dad really encouraged me to stay in school. And he was like, listen, when you graduate high school, you can make your decisions. When I ended up deciding to go and, and getting my Bachelor of Arts in theater, which was great because I, I believe I got a great education, but it wasn't what I would have set out to do. I would have started a lot earlier. Method acting is a term that we hear thrown around a lot. It's sort of become muddled almost. And if you ask actors what their method is, you get a different answer each time. So, Danielle, what's your method? It's a combination of many different methods, mm. you know? Look, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Nothing is a one-size-fits-all in life. Maybe somebody a vegan diet's great for somebody. Maybe for somebody else, it doesn't really resonate with their body. And so when it comes to methods, I mean, you know, I studied Stella Adler, you know, Stanislavski, Strasberg, the greats. The one I'm thinking of right now is it's it's not going to, it's I'm, it's going to completely escape my my mind, but it's the, the repetition that you would do. It, it's gone. <laughs> I've got too many things going on. But <laughs> there were, you know, and then you you study all the great plays, you know, Mamet and Tennessee Williams and, and Shakespeare. And ultimately, you want to be able to tell the truth in an imaginary set of circumstances. It's the very simple. How do you access your faculties, your body, your emotion to where you're connecting with what the lines are so that they seem natural or natural to the character's disposition and then engage with the character in the scene with you? What do you need from your character? Like, where did you just come from? What's your backstory? And then all these things kind of make up who this character is. I mean, you have some actors, you know, that kind of play the same thing over and over again. They're just really fascinating to watch. They don't really vary from that one tone. And then you have an actor like Kate Blanchett, right? Or Daniel Day-Lewis that you just, they're shapeshifters. And I always was fascinated with shapeshifters. I, I, I mm. sort of love that idea of really stepping into somebody else's skin and then accessing parts of me that related to that character. It could, it could be a very indirect way, but how do I access that part of me so that I can tell the truth for that character and fulfill their story's needs? So how far do you go personally when it comes to maybe something that won't be seen on the screen by the audience, but, you know, maybe making a journal for your character or something just to help you oh, internalize things? Yeah. yeah, that's funny you mentioned that because... <laughs> I'm very studious. You can ask anyone that I work with, like the notes on my script are like a novel, like war and peace. Like it's, it doesn't, <laughs> it's not, 
And not every character requires that, but some of them do. I, I just recently played a complete enigma of a character. Like she's she's a riddle wrapped in a rhyme and you don't understand it all. But I had to try to make sense of her, especially because I, I usually play, you know, sort of formidable women who are troubled. There's a lot of complexity and typically they don't, nobody really thinks what they're doing is wrong or would have a judgment on themselves. Usually you're, you're thinking that the choices you're making, you, you must make or are the right choice. You know, in fact, this is what people need, you know, this is what I need. You know, I, I didn't know the entry point into her kind of like the mother of death and insidious. I mean, slapping my son around, dressing him up like a little girl. It's like, okay, let's try to understand what happened to Michelle Crane, really, for her to do this. You know, I, I could just play her as a villain, but that you could just write off a villain. How boring. I, I wanted to bring trauma and emotion and great grief and, and pain to this woman who was doing something very heinous and abusive to her son. So this other character that I play, Norma Steele in The Blue Rose, which is going to be hitting the, the festival circuit soon, where we have our premiere at the London Fright Fest in August. I'm very excited. I took my entire script and like made these incredible notes just filling in all the blanks. And I had, and one day the director, George Barron had seen it and he was like, I am publishing your script. This is like, <laughs> this is the diary of Norma Steele. Like with all of her secrets are in here. So yeah, that is my, that's my MO. What was the name of that movie again? I'm sorry. It's called The Blue Rose. Keep your eye out for it. It's going to be very exciting. We're going to be at the London Fright Fest in August, late August. Can IMDb it? It's up now. Great cast, Olivia Scott Welch of Fear Street. A lot of great actors involved. And George Barron, the writer, director, producer, who's also co-starring it, is like all of 17 years old. So he conceived and wrote it when he was 15, shot it when he was 16, and now 17, turning 18. It's it's extraordinary. Wow. And, and Javon Hoy, executive produced, he did The Witch and The Lighthouse with Robert Eggers. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Um, yeah. So yeah, great, a great crew, great production. That is a great crew. We were just talking about method acting. So does your method change depending on whether you're on stage or on screen, or is it always the same? I'm grateful for the stage because it accessed all parts of my body, voice, movement, creating a character from the inside out so that when I am on the screen, the, the more simple, the delivery or the communication, right? Because you're not, there's not this whole like void of, of audience, you know, like reaching to the back of the room or projecting your voice or gesticulating in a way that was going to make sense because, you know, you're here, but the rest of my body is alive. Like I'm not dead from the neck down. And I think sometimes you can see that with some actors, maybe if they don't have that kind of training or, you know, it's just kind of like head acting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a, there's a, there's a, like a quickening, like a life force that's, that's always sort of like churning. And I really do love the art of cinema and also in television where, you know, you can kind of get close to that. So even sometimes just a look up and a thought registers and you read it. That's, that's quite lovely, you know, and then sometimes it's great to <sighs> like, you know, you know on the stage like just let it let it be bigger let it be more expressed i think they go well together if you're able to adjust and of course have a great director because <laughs> there's times where i've had to been brought down and then brought an actor needs a director i spoke with a lot of actors who start off on stage saying that they struggled with toning themselves down initially for the camera because it's so focused did, yes did you struggle with that initially as well 
there was an adjustment period for sure. Mm. And even still that, you know, there's just a boldness sometimes, I guess, in my energy that I can go 50% and it's still pretty palpable. <laughs> it's like at 100%, it's like, okay, <laughs> just, just calm it down. <laughs> How did you transition from a stage to screen? How did it happen for you? I found some really great workshops, pulled reading classes, casting director, some casting director workshops where I learned a lot about different techniques and cold camera audition techniques. Eric Klein's Film Actors Workshop, which was all about film and the camera. Leslie Kahn, Sherry Shaw. At that time, I was going to AIA Actors Studio. I don't think they exist anymore, but I learned how to make a resume, where to go to get headshots, you know, how to submit yourself to an agent. These are not the things that you learn necessarily in theater school, which if you want a career in television and film are very important. And I felt like that company was really onto something. I'm surprised there, maybe there are more. I don't know that now because I'm not out there hoofing it. Yeah, that was invaluable for me to make that transition and see myself. Oh, wow. That's what it looks like. We did have so I was a double emphasis in musical theater and acting. We did have some experience with camera, but I think that we were probably a little under, not as sophisticated in the acting for the camera in college as we were with theater. So for aspiring screenwriters out there, you have a lot of scripts come across your hands. What are some indicators that you have a good one, you know, that, that you're reading something that you're going to enjoy? Yeah, like a through line is really important. It's it's I always find it's great when there's a payoff, a great setup and a payoff, dialogue that feels natural. And sometimes it's stylized, it just depends on the genre, but I always gravitate toward a character who has an arc, right? Like some 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 sort of transformation. They could be doing the most heinous things, you know, completely catastrophic energy uh, in their own life. I mean, or or to somebody else. And if if there's growth, an aha moment, a corner that's turned, that's just so rewarding to play and sort of map out, you know, where, how your character, you know, gets there. Obviously it's going to be in the writing, right? So first it always starts on the page and I'm totally in support of the writer, especially since I've, I'm a bit of a fledgling writer myself and I know how difficult it is. Oh my God. It's re rewriting and rewriting and layering and layering and rewriting and going deeper and pulling back and getting, and you know, they say, what do they say? Take your puppies out to the barn and shoot them. Like sometimes you have to like Hit, like take like cut your some of your most favorite things and it's just it's a nightmare and to get a really good script I think is a nothing short of a miracle I mean to, and then for all of it to come together in a film is a complete lightning in a bottle miracle but it happens we watch them and we know and we know when we care about the characters I don't care how many explosions there are how many pair of tits you have to look at no that that's sensationalism oh another car chase how great like okay so the one car chase or two and of course I'm a female audience member but a car chase is great but we don't need the whole film unless like fast and the furious sorry fast and the furious but i know that's like what your movie's all about but i think fast and the furious probably has withstood the test of time because you care about this posse you care about these characters they've become this little unlikely family right and that's who you're rooting for the humanity piece which is why ai will never take over fully, I don't think, because that's a bigger conversation, which we probably don't have time for. But yeah, that'd be a whole other interview. <laughs> that's a whole other interview because AI can only be as, as intelligent as us, but it's never going to have blood. It's never going to have a heartbeat. It's never going to understand what love is. At least I don't think 
from a human level. It's just not human. And so when we see those movies and we relate to the humanity piece, that's what I think is is what makes a great film. No matter what genre, no matter what gimmicks you have, you've got to care about your characters. Well said. While we're on the subject of writing, you know, the writer's strike is going on now. So from that perspective, how are things work-wise now? Are things slow? Or I'm in support of our writers. I'm in support of the WGA. I'm in support of fairness. I- I'm not in the WGA, so I don't know all the ins and outs of this, but I know that AI is a concern and I know that when we're talking about streaming it was this whole new landscape it's like when we had iPods and all of a sudden nobody was you know buying music anymore and then there was all this pirating happen right I'm not saying this is pirating but it's it's a new landscape where look you steal somebody's song that feels easy but that is like going in and stealing a diamond ring i mean you how much time and thought and energy and 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 innovation goes into writing it and then recording it and all the cost and everything and then you're just like let me just pluck that no you can't and so now we've got streaming and and there were all these different ways like of different revenues coming in and then the residuals were changing for writers also by the way for actors as well and we live on those residuals in between jobs there very vital to keep these writers, actors, you know, directors uh, afloat. And so I always feel there's probably more room for fairness because we have this thing called human greed, sadly, that kicks in. I won't speak much more to it than that because I don't want to speak to something that I don't know fully, right. like the ins and outs. But, you know, I see them on the picket line and I honk my horn and I I, I hope it comes to a resolve. Fortunately or unfortunately, the scope of video games are not in a non-union sector. So they are not in the WGA. So that aspect of my livelihood can continue through this. But um, no, everything else is in a big pause. (laughs) You did mention Insidious earlier, and I wanted to ask you about that job. Was it a typical audition? It was a typical audition in the sense that, you know, I got the sides and I, I went to my coach. I got myself on tape for that one. I sent in a tape. This was way back in the days when they started doing tapes, self-tapes. It was just when, you know, James Wan in the description, it said evil Disney queen. And it's funny because one of the dresses that I just put on here at the runway uh, magazine photo shoot was very, it was very hearkening of Corella DeVille. And I was like, yeah, that was the, I played her at Disneyland when I was 19, 18 years old. (laughs) The Glenn Close version, very dramatic with the lips and the puppies, you know, and the like long cigarette. So when I got the mother of death and she was just out of control but she was just like you know just taking a bite out of all of it i was like oh this feels a little bit like that formidable energy of corella and just like i don't give a you know what like this is i am doing this and so i was bold in my choices but then i also brought a lot of that pain in there you know the tears welling in the eyes when i'm looking at him saying that's the name your father gave you it's like what happened you know, and they've been lobbying. Actually, they signed a petition to have a Mother of Death standalone film, and I'm totally for it because she made such an indelible mark in that scene. But there's really no nobody knows why, and she is the reason that this family has the haunting, right? I think they're the Lambert family. Yeah. The reason the Lambert family has this haunting is because I screwed up my son so greatly that the rest of his life he's the bride in black and he's a disaster and he's glommed onto this family. But it, but the origin starts with Michelle Crane. And then I wonder what happened to Michelle Crane to get Michelle Crane into that space of complete lunacy. It seems like something that they would explore because that's what that universe likes to do. You know, you had the whole Conjuring universe where it seems like each little villain gets their backstory and that would be a cool one to get. Come on, let's get them. (laughs) I need to slap more people. Yeah. (laughs) 
So James Wan, how does James Wan's directing style differ from other directors you've worked with? Well, he's very meticulous, but I would say most directors I've worked with, the great ones are meticulous, down to the color of my makeup, the palette of the makeup and the lenses and the lights and the choreography of the camera. And he's a mad scientist. He's, I said, he's got a little bit of Willy Wonka because you don't know. <laughs> little, little twinkle in his eye. It's a little evil. It's also a little jovial. You're a little terrified, but you're also, you can't, it's like we are mocked to the flame, you know? I loved working with James and I would be delighted to work with him again. So Daniel, what about God of War? Was that a typical audition? Were you trying to break into the voice acting scene? Not at all. Well, I always wanted to be in, in, in voice over, but I, I was not trying to break into the world of video games. Not that I, I wouldn't have wanted to. I just didn't even really know that that existed. I knew that they became more sophisticated. I knew Call of Duty. And I always thought they were more like shoot 'em up type things, which I'm not, you know, or like a, what was the one, the Grand Theft Auto, you know, yeah. like and just the way that female characters were depicted, you know, like horrors or rape or whatever it was. I was like, I nah, no, thank you. But sorry, Grand Theft, but it wasn't for me. And then, you know, because I loved, you know, Miss Pac-Man and Frogger and Super Mario and all those like our great arcade games of the 80s and, and 90s. And and then, um, yeah, I got the audition and it was just it's beautiful. It seemed like a Shakespearean soliloquy of a queen that had lost her kingdom and had regretted choices. But, you know, just was like heartache, but regalness, but broken. And I was like, oh, I think I know. No, I think I know this lady. I went in and gave it my best, you know, Khaleesi, Mother of Dragons, Lady Stark. <laughs> I did refrain from putting on the fake English accent, even though it's one of my favorite things to do. It just was right. I was right for Freya. I could have never imagined it, and it has changed my life. It's the thing I'm probably the most proud of and the most grateful for. Talk about transformation in my life and the platform that it's given me. It's been remarkable. You come from a theater background. Other actors I've spoken with that have worked on games and done motion capture say that it feels more akin to stage when you're doing motion capture would you say that's fair absolutely yeah it's like theater in the round in a lot of ways you know and it's like um because no matter where you turn the camera's gonna get you so right you're just really living in the reality of the scene but the way that that's not real is that it's an all-white room and you're in like a velcro black onesie you know you got a helmet on your head a camera in your face so technically it's not, a, there's no reality, but the reality of taking a scene from beginning, middle and end, that that fluidity and that through line is quite lovely to experience as an actor because you're living and breathing in that moment and, and the, the charge of the energy sort of brings you through the whole scene, you know, rather than stopping it and cutting it and piecing it all together, which I, I really enjoy. So that was your first game period? That was around. my first video game. I knocked it out of the park. <laughs> yeah, that's that's crazy. It's, it won every award there is. And since that's your that's your first experience, you have no reference in your head to tell that you're working on something that's going to be amazing. <laughs> I knew that the people I was working with were incredible and incredibly kind. I mean, I I love I love the dev team at Sony Santa Monica Studios. I love the actors I've worked with. Chris Judge has become one of my dearest friends. I mean, all of them really. It, we we were like a family. I mean, we've been doing it for um, nine years now. Next year will be 10 years. And obviously they've been doing it a lot longer. I came in in the 2018 game and of course they already had three God of Wars, but no, I, I knew it was special, but I didn't know how beautiful and magnificent it was until I actually watched scenes at the first rap party. And I, I saw our images like up on the wall and I just started crying. I was like, what have I been doing for the past five years? I, I, I didn't know. I just knew the reality of Freya. I knew Norse Pantheon. I knew the characters and the what was on the page, but I didn't 
I didn't visually and sonically know, you know, then the Bear McCreary score, I was like, I'm having feelings. <laughs> feelings. Well, Danielle, this is a question I like to get in with everybody because you, you never know. Have you ever had an experience you would consider supernatural or paranormal? Yes, a few, but there was this one very interesting thing that happened. So I was in college and I was in the musical Hair. I booked the lead role, Sheila, right? And she's got like the great greatest songs and she's got like the rock ballad. And at that moment, I was still developing my voice and the voice is like a direct connection to your truth and also your confidence, right? Being able to speak up for yourself. And I knew I loved singing, but I, I didn't, there was a disconnect happening from like my, the support of my body to the sound I was wanting to come out. And I was still finding it. I sang fine. I, I, I sing much bolder and better now, so many years later, because of my life experience, because of the self-acceptance and all that stuff that is, I believe, directly linked to like your throat chakra. And of course, all the experience of singing and just building my craft and my instrument. But I remember I was terrified. I was like, I feel that maybe it was a little bit of imposter syndrome. It wasn't that I didn't think I could play the role. It was like, I didn't know if I could sing it. Mm. Like, I didn't have that musical theater voice. Like it was a different, my voice was a little different. It was more like pop folk in that range, and which, which would work for a rock musical like Hair. So all that to say, I lost my voice, which is not by accident. It, it was, I think, a psychosomatic. So I got sick and lost it. And we were pushing upon opening. And I was devastated. I was just gutted. And I remembered praying and praying and praying so hard. I was like, please, like God, like Jesus, like help me. Like I, I, I know I deserve this, but I'm scared. And I don't know. I don't know what's going on. You know, I was still so young. I think I was like 18 years old, 19. <laughs> Are you ready for this? You asked. I'm ready. So I was sick and I was laying in bed. I was in this day bed and I totally remember it. And I had this window and it's when you're Belinda, California, which is Orange County. And I remembered, I, and I was not on drugs and I don't think I was not on any antihistamines. Maybe I was on like, I don't know, like some sort of a throat lozenge, but I was not, I was not well. And I was laying there and I was praying and I was praying. I was like, please, I need a miracle. I, I, I have to sing this. This is my, my, my duty. This is my calling. I've got to do it. And all of a sudden, <laughs> okay, this, this is, if this gets printed, I don't know what's going to happen. All of a sudden I heard this little chirping of a bird and I turned and I looked into the window and it was a white dove like the Holy Spirit, right? It was a white dove and I, I just stared at it and it was looking at me. And without speaking, I telepathically asked the bird, like, are you here to heal me? And the bird was like, it kind of looked at me like a yes. And then I said, okay, you can, you can come in. <laughs> the bird <laughs> just flew into my ear. I felt my entire body, like a rush, like chills. And it was like white, light golden light all through my body and i just laid there and i was just like i don't know what the hell this is but i'm gonna go with it because i'm pretty desperate at the moment and then the next day i was able to sing again and little by little my voice strengthened i was able to do opening night that was the supernatural god moment there you go that's why i asked the question you never know the magical birds <laughs> you never know you weren't picturing the dove flying in somebody's <laughs> ear the dove of the holy spirit yeah no but, but that's why i asked <laughs> there there it is i i cannot tell a lie that did happen <laughs>
Well, Danielle, it's been a pleasure just to put a bow on everything and I'll let you go. Uh, what's on the horizon for you that you can share without getting in trouble? Oh, yes, there are some NDAs. <laughs> but um, so I'm doing this amazing um, shoot with Runway Magazine. I'm loving it. The team is phenomenal. I've got the Blue Rose that's going to be at London Fright Fest in August. I play my character, Norma Steele. She's very uh, formidable, femme fatale. And then, a few, and then there's a couple, there's two NDA things that I cannot talk about. Um, and there's probably a third one. So there's three things going on that I, the third one, I'm not sure if I can talk about yet, but the third one is in the voiceover world. Um, and the other two I are. Please don't say, it. please don't get yourself in I'm trouble. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. And then, well, there's nothing happening in TV and film, but I do have some projects that I've, that I did write and I'm producing. So I've got two projects. One's a dystopian sci-fi horror thriller about AI oh, good. <laughs> and the other one is wake me. It's the psychological thriller fantasy or that's all about the, the cycles we get caught in and how we sleepwalk through life and how we need to wake up. So we stop hurting ourselves and the people that we love from our uh, unconscious trauma. Well, that's awesome. Well, Danielle, thank you for giving me some of your time. It's been a pleasure to chat with you this evening. You too, monsters, madness and madness. <laughs> there we go. I thought the fringe would work for that. It does. It's perfect. All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Danielle. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs>